Hey everybody, Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. You can find us at afterlifetv.com. This is where we search for evidence of life after death and ask the meaningful questions around that subject. Today's subject is near-death experiences. So many of you love this subject. And we're going to talk about what the lessons we can learn from them. Um, and we have someone who has researched near-death experiences. In fact, uh, I think she was the first, if I can even read this, first uh, UK's first long-term perspective study, which is pretty impressive, uh, uh, sort of cutting edge. Her name is Dr. Penny Sartori. Penny, thanks for being on Afterlife TV. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, it's so exciting. Uh, we do have a big audience that loves this subject matter. There's something about near-death experiences that excite people and uh, and obviously, that's what happened with you. Why don't you tell us about your background, let everybody know that you were a nurse, and, and, and what you did there, and then um, what the experience or experiences were that sort of got you interested in this subject matter. Right, well, I used to work as a nurse, and I was a nurse for 21 years, and 17 of those years were in intensive care. Wow. And it was shortly after I began working in intensive care that I realized death was really very frequent. It happened to people of all ages, and not just elderly people, very young people as well. And it really brought it home to me. But I think it was one night shift when I was caring for a man who was dying, and he knew he was dying. And I, I made a connection with him that night. I had just come on duty, and I was preparing everything to wash the patient. And I adjusted the bed. And with that, the man nearly jumped out of bed in agony, and our eyes connected. And it's almost as if I'd swapped places with him and I could feel what, what he was going through and what he was feeling. And that had a very deep and profound effect on me and I couldn't stop thinking about it all night. And um, the following day I went home after my night shift, couldn't sleep. And I phoned work mid-morning to find out how he was doing. And they said that he died two hours after I'd left the unit. And so I started thinking, well, what is death all about? Is it, is it that bad that we've got to put patients through all this trauma at the end of their life when they know that they're clearly dying and so I started reading about death because there were no courses available that dealt specifically with death in a critical care area. They were all palliative care which is a very different approach and so in my reading I came across near-death experiences and I thought oh now this is really fascinating. These people are saying that death is nothing to be afraid of and I think I had a lot of preconceptions about these experiences. My training as a nurse had been very scientific and I'd always kind of been led to believe that these were some sort of hallucinations yeah. that maybe it, it was the brain as the brain is shutting down. Yeah. And so I'd never really I'd never really heard of them and you know investigated them much in depth. But I think the more I started to read about them, the more my curiosity sort of uh, peaked. And so I thought, well, I'm working in the ideal place to do my own research here. And I thought, right, why don't I do my own? And that's what I decided to do. So I was really lucky because I was able to do my research um, under the supervision of two people in, in the UK who are experts in the field of near-death experiences. That was Professor Paul Badham and Dr. Peter Fenwick. So I was really lucky to have two great supervisors as well. And so the research went on. I, was, I did the data collection over a period of five years where I interviewed patients in the intensive care unit. And then it took another three years to write up and analyze all the data that I had. And then I think it took about five years to get over it all. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it did. Um, 
you uh, you ended up getting a PhD because of this, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, and and was that sort of an afterthought, or was that you you wanted to get a PhD, decided you would do it on this? No, that was just a consequence of what I was doing. Really, you know, I was fascinated, and that's all I wanted to do was to research near death experiences. And the way it just happened was that. I happened to get a PhD at the end of it, so it, that wasn't the motivating factor. It was all about learning more about near-death experiences that motivated me. Oh, I love that. I love that. The, you know, what a great result um, from doing all of this. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I don't know if this, this story that you told about that first man, um, he, he uh, you actually experienced some... Well, he was having deathbed visions. Is that the same man that was having deathbed visions, or was this someone else? No, this was someone else. This man was had quite a prolonged death, and he, he was really quite in a lot of pain, and he it was as if he was suffering, really, at the end of his life. And I just thought, you know, we need to understand death a lot more than what we do. And did he not ask you, um, this particular man, did he not ask you to uh, sort of let him die peacefully? Yes. How did that take place? Well, he couldn't talk because he was connected to the ventilator via a tracheostomy, but he was mouthing the words to me, let, leave me alone, let me die, let me die in peace. Wow. And that's when my eyes connected and that's when I kind of felt what he was feeling and everything. That's a powerful experience, I would imagine, for a nurse. Uh, you're trained, you're trained uh, to deal with someone physically, uh, mm -hmm. all their physical uh, symptoms and, and make sure they're comfortable and here someone brings up this new idea of, you know, just let me be at peace. Uh, that must have been, I can see how that could have been a, a sort of a life-changing moment for you. I think, uh, I think that's really cool. Now, uh, you had had another man where you did experience what we call deathbed visions or pre-death visions or what do they yeah. say, end-of-life experiences, all kinds of names, right? Yes, that's right. I can remember my very first day on the ward as a student nurse and I was sitting in the office and the night nurse was handing over what had happened on the, the night shift and she said, oh yes, and the man in section C, bed six, he'll be dead by the end of the morning because he's been talking to his dead mother since 3am. And I looked around and I thought, are they trying to wind me up because it's my first day? <laughs> and everyone carried on writing as if it was the most normal thing. And after the night after the, uh, the night shift had handed over, I went out and had a look at this man. And indeed, I could see him gesturing to someone and he was talking to someone who I couldn't see. And I kept, got called away to assist with other patients. But throughout the course of the morning I went back and forth and I observed this man and he was clearly communicating with someone and I can remember it was about half past 11 in the morning I went up to his bedside because he seemed more animated and it was as if he had his arms outstretched as if he was trying to reach someone and he had this big smile on his face and he half sat up in bed outstretched his arms and then he just relaxed lay back down and then it looked like he'd gone to sleep, but he'd actually died. And so everything that the night nurse had said came true. He did actually die by the end of the morning. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, and, and great introduction. I'm, I'm sure many, many nurses are recognizing this. Do, do they all know what it is or are many of them very skeptical about it? 
I think a lot of people just kind of accept it because they've seen it so frequently now. You know, you talk to any nurse and I'm sure every nurse you speak to could give you some sort of story like that. Yeah, yeah. And for you, and what's cool about these experiences, because I think it happens a lot with Afterlife TV viewers, they, they hear about these things and then they recognize in hindsight they had an experience like this. Uh, you had, in hindsight, recognized that you had this experience with your grandfather, correct? Yes, that's right. And at the time when it was happening, I really didn't know what it was and I didn't really pay much attention to it, you know. And as he was dying, and I think it started about two or three days before he died and he used to point to the doorway. And um, my grandmother, she used to get really spooked by it and she used to run out. But I can remember looking at him and I'd say, that, well, there's no one there. There's no, I can't see anyone. And I didn't question it further, you know. And now, in retrospect, I wish that I'd spent more time listening to what he was trying to communicate to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I love those stories. So, all right. Um, so now you're... You're studying near-death experiences. Why don't we just say, for those people who don't know, and I think a lot of people don't know, don't know because, for one, they're hard to remember. Can you tell us, based on your research, what the typical stages are that one goes through mm -hmm. in, in a near-death experience? And, I'll, and I'll, I'll preempt that with every experience is a little bit different, and it doesn't mean that anybody has to go through these experiences for it to be a near-death experience, but what's more typical than the others? Well, I think a lot of people tend to leave their body and they look down at the emergency situation from above. Uh, some people go through a dark tunnel towards a, a bright light. And that bright light, although it's very bright, it doesn't hurt their eyes. And sometimes it has a magnetic quality and they feel very drawn to this light. Uh, once in the light, they find themselves sometimes in beautiful gardens, lush green grass, vividly coloured flowers. Sometimes there's a stream in the background, running water, a little bridge. And very often they meet dead relatives or friends. And sometimes it's people they didn't know to be dead at the time of the experience. Sometimes they can meet a being of light, and this being of light could be associated with a person's culture. So, for example, in the West, they're more likely to see images of Jesus. In the East, perhaps um, a Hindu deity such as Krishna. Um, sometimes they come to a barrier or a, a point of no return. That could be anything. It could be a river, it could be a gate, it could be a doorway. But they know if they cross over that, they will not come back to life. Some people have a life review and I'm fascinated by the life review because it can have such an impact on people as well. And it's almost as if they, they relive the whole of their life in great depth and they can sometimes relive it from a third person perspective. So they can feel how their actions have impacted on other people. So if they've been particularly unpleasant or even violent towards someone, they know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that unpleasantness and that violence. And conversely, if they've been particularly nice or just nice to people, some, you know, they, they get to feel what that impact has had on other people. And sometimes they realize it's just simple things like smiling at someone, holding a door open for someone. It can have far-reaching effects down the line as well. So that is particularly interesting to me. Yeah. And... Um, and very often they're sent back to life. They're told it's not their time that um, they have to go back to life. And um, in fact, there are some cases where people have woken up or, or revived after the near-death experience. And they've been quite angry at having been resuscitated as well. So that's quite interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. You know, you know um, uh, how common is it that... Uh 
people have that experience where they're um, told to go back um, during the NDE, but, uh, but they actually don't want to. Is it more common that they don't want to uh, and are just told that they have to? Yes, it, it does seem to be very common that they're told. Some people feel that um, they do make a conscious decision to return. Mm -hmm. Some people feel like they're given the choice and then they think of their life back on Earth. And that decision is perhaps made for them and they just find themselves back in their body instantaneously. So it varies, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and I imagine for those people, you would know better, really better than anybody because you're talking to these people um, in a very analytical way. But So for those who uh, didn't want to come back and they, say, have families, you know, maybe young children... Uh, mm -hmm. They must go through a lot of guilt, that sort of, you know, emotional feelings about that. Uh, and, and what is it? They just, are they, are they having a hard time justifying the way they felt there and, and their, the knowing that they had that everything was going to be okay for everyone? Uh, what is the issue really? Yeah, I think a lot of them feel really guilty that the feeling of where they were was so wonderful that they were quite prepared to stay there, yet they had young family and people who they love dearly on this earth as well. And so they were torn between the two. And I think be because they sort of wanted to stay where they were, that gives them a, a great deal of, of guilt. Yeah. And sometimes it can take them many years to come to terms with this guilt as well. What, what do you think um, helps them uh, to work through that guilt? Uh, does it help, first of all, just to hear other people's stories and know that they're not the only ones who felt that way? Yes, it does. And um, I tell you what are really great are support groups as well, so that people who've had similar experiences to, can talk to people who understand because they've been through it as well. And that's really, really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about children's NDEs. Um, how different are the children's near-death experiences from those of adults? And, and what can we learn from these experiences? Well, with the children, they, they're very similar in many ways to the adult ones, but they can vary in that children tend to see more pets in their uh, experiences, and sometimes they see relatives who are still alive as well. But again, with the children's experiences, they, they don't really have any concept of death, yet they, they tend to follow this set pattern as well. So, uh, you know, they, I give an example in the book of um, a man who contacted me, and first he described his own experience, but he said, this experience of my son happened when he was um, a young child. He was on the operating table and he had a cardiac arrest. And it was touch and go whether they'd resuscitate him, but they did successfully resuscitate him. That's right. This, so this young boy had been res resuscitated successfully. So on his day off, then his father said, well, where do you want to go? Should we go out somewhere? And the little boy said, yes, I want to go to the park. And the father said, well, I haven't taken you to a park. What, what park do you mean? And he said, the park that I went to when I was in the hospital. He said, the one through the tunnel. And uh, he went on to describe he'd got into this tunnel and then come through the other side. And there was a park with lots of other children playing uh, behind a white fence. And he went to climb over the fence and there was a man standing there with a white beard. And he said, no, you have to go back. You're not allowed in yet. It's too soon. And he went back through the tunnel, back into the hospital. And as his father said, how can a small child with no concept of these experiences describe something that is so very much like the adult um, near-death experiences? 
it's amazing when you think about it. And it, you know what's amazing to me when you when every time I hear these stories, they're told that they have to go back. Um, it's just it's very interesting because almost instantaneously they're back in their bodies, right? Yes, that's right, yes. And the interesting thing as well is that um, while they've been out of their bodies, they've been pain-free, and if they were suffering any pain prior to the experience, as soon as they're back in their body, that pain comes back immediately. And so a lot of people would say, well, that's just the endorphins, that's why they've got no pain. But endorphins is a very slow onset of pain. So you would expect it to be more gradual, whereas people who've or re-enter their body, it's immediate. It's not gradual onset. Yeah, yeah, and and um, and and the, in fact, uh, well, let's let's just talk about your book right now. We'll take this moment to talk about it because uh, it's relevant in this particular thing. The wisdom of near-death experiences: how understanding NDEs can help us live more fully. Dr. Penny Sartori. There'll be a link below this video and all the show notes. Um, fantastic book and uh you have a chapter that talks about all of these um uh say reasons that people have come up with uh for why the body and brain create these experiences um and i'm talking about people who don't believe that they're actual near-death experiences where people go into the spirit world and such. Yeah. And you've, uh, you've talked about each one of them. What seems to be the most popular one? I think the most common explanation, and you know, these are all quite logical explanations when we think about them. And I think the most common one is people would think that they're due to lack of oxygen. Yeah. But then with the, the research that I did in the hospital, you know, some of the patients were having these experiences while they were still oxygenated. So, the, and the, there are some examples in my research where blood was extracted at that time and their oxygen levels was, were normal. So I know it's a small sample, but it still, it shows that in some cases people are not lacking in oxygen, yet still having this kind of experience. A lot of people would say, is it due to the drugs that we give? Because, you know, in intensive care, we do give very uh, potent drugs as well. And what I found when I analysed my data was, in fact, the drugs that we give patients are more likely to inhibit the experience oh. or to turn it into a confusional experience. So I think... You know, there were a lot of people who were given loads of drugs, yet they didn't report the experience. So if it was due to drugs, I would have expected a higher frequency there. That's very interesting. Uh, um, <laughs> is morphine one of the more popular pain uh, Yes. Yes, morphine is, is quite a popular drug of choice, yes. And does that seem to, have you, have you recognized, I mean, there's all kinds of drugs that people could be taking, but... Um, yeah. Is it that drugs like morphine would really more prohibit them from being able to recall the experience or describe it later, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're not having them, correct? Yes, that's right. It could well be that they're having the experience, but in some way it is confused a little bit or inhibited in some way by the morphine as well. Yeah. And In fact, there was one man and he had a near-death experience, but prior to that, or a few weeks before, He'd also been receiving morphine and he'd been having hallucinations and he was able to distinguish 
the difference between both experiences that he had. And with a near-death experience, it's very precise and clear and lucid, whereas with morphine, it's very kind of distorted and bizarre and irrational. And when I followed up the patients in my study as well, because I did a comparison of people who had been hallucinating and people with a near-death experience, and the ones who had been hallucinating on things like morphine and fentanyl and midazolam, when I followed them up, they could rationalise that they had been hallucinating and they were quite embarrassed by their behaviour, you know. But then the people who'd had the near-death experience, they were very adamant that that was a real experience. And one man said, you know, this is realer than real. Unless you've had the experience for yourself, you couldn't possibly understand it. So there were big differences there. That's really, that's really interesting. That's fascinating to know. How about people um, who are... In comas, um, how much experience have you had with people who were in a coma and then later were uh, came to tell you about a near-death experience? Yeah, there were quite a few people in my uh, my research who were in drug-induced comas mm -hmm. and during the time that they were unconscious recalled very clear and lucid experiences that were going on at the time of unconsciousness as well. Okay. Uh, fantastic. All right, I'm going to get back to the children again because you said something, uh, and I read in your book, that a lot of times the children will um, recount their near-death experiences seeing people who, were, who are alive at the mm -hmm. time. Are they, so they're seeing them during their NDE. NDE. Uh, what does that mean to you? I don't know. A lot of people um, have looked into this and we don't know. Maybe it's because of people that they're familiar with, you know, in their kind of subconscious as well. Not really that sure why. They do see deceased relatives as well. And some people actually point out deceased relatives that they've never met, sort of grandparents that have died before they were born and things like that. So that is quite interesting as well. Yeah, that is. That is very interesting. Um you talked about the cultural beliefs already, um, so there does seem to be quite a, a connection between one person's beliefs and um, and how they describe their near-death experience, uh, the people that they see, that sort of a thing. But uh, I'm curious: do you think it's um, do you think it's changing the experience itself, or just how they're interpreting it? I think it's probably just the interpretation of it, really, because I guess we're all um, we all brought up with different cultural symbols around us. And even, you know, people in the West, you know, if even if they're not religious as such, the, the imagery is still around them and things like that. So there are things in the subconscious, but I think it's just as if it's interpreted according to each individual's cultural filter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you do describe the life review process, and, and I, you know, I think a lot of people agree that it's one of the most interesting stages of the, the near-death experience. Uh, how does the life review typically affect the lives of these people who have had near-death experiences and gone through that stage? It makes them really wake up to the way they've, they've been living their life. And sometimes they can be most embarrassed by watching their life review. Mm. And some people find it a very traumatic experience just to relive their life. And sometimes they, they uh, review their life in the presence of the being of light. And in fact, there's no judgment at all from the being of light. It's the person themselves who is doing the judging. And that being of light is acting as a source of comfort. And so I think what it makes them do, it, it, it 
they have to face up to their behaviour and the way in which they were living their life. So I think it makes them really readjust to how they then proceed in their life. And very often people are more loving towards each other. They're more tolerant of other people then because they have a slightly different insight into uh, and perhaps a more empathic view of what other people are going through as well. So um, I think it has a very big effect on people, the life review. That is interesting. And, and I think one of the, one of the reasons why... Um, when you're having the life review process and now you're able to see through someone else's eyes how your words and actions affect them, um, I, I, I imagine you come back with some sense of the reality of that now in, in, in the way that they're reacting to people. And so even when someone else is being maybe kind of nasty to them, they probably get a better sense that there's something behind that might not have anything to do with them, but mm -hmm. in that way they become more em empathetic. Uh, yes. Does that seem? Does that ring true for you? Yes, absolutely. Yes, and I think that's had a, a big effect for me, really, in my own life. Just through reading about these experiences and studying them, it's made me think and reflect on my own actions in life as well. So it's had a big knock-on effect on me, although I've not had a near-death experience. I kind of learn from these people as well, so it's had a you know a big impact. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I mean, the research that I've done, I I think I'm certainly got to be a much more loving and compassionate person um, than if I had not been in this field, working in this field. Uh, I think uh, you had mentioned in the book that uh, older children tend to describe their life reviews differently than younger children. I'm not sure if I got that right or if you said that kids who had an NDE when they were younger and then had another one when they were older. Um, what was that you were talking about in the book? And Well, sometimes for the children as well, when they have the experience, they have this great yearning to go back into where they were as well. So that can be a long-lasting effect on them as well. So, um, yeah, that, that can have its better benefits but also it can have that dark side of things as well so they they go through life yearning to go back to that place as well yeah and and, and then i imagine the the older children now they're starting to gain more beliefs and and social expectations and so their interpretations would reflect such right yes that's right yes um other than the the life review are there other aspects of the near-death experience that tend to change change these near-death experiencers lives um other things that are more just as significant or close to significant as significant as the life review uh something that can have a big impact on people is when they meet dead relatives as well yeah. and uh, they can see their the relative um, they're looking younger and they look radiant so if they remember their loved one as they were dying maybe and they didn't look so nice you know as if they were suffering and they have that bad memory of that when they meet them again and they see them in the afterlife state if you like um it gives them a different perspective and and they they're they're comforted a lot more through seeing them in that that state really that they they look much better have you um i mean You've known a lot of these people for a long time, probably. I, I, I imagine you see them more than once. So you don't just, do you, mm -hmm. ju yeah. Um, and do you notice that when any one of them go through a loss, you know, they lo they lose a loved one, that they um, seem to be able to deal with their grief 
uh, at least differently, um, maybe not quite so uh, sad or, or yes. tragically. Yes, definitely. I've I've seen that. Um, in fact, with a few of the people who I've met, and I've 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 kept in touch with them. One man in particular over a period of about fifteen years, and after his near death experience, it was about five years later that his wife died, and that's why he had returned because he wanted to be with his wife. And then when when she died, I thought that may have had quite a devastating effect. But he. That the fact that he'd had his experience had given him a p- different perspective and it helped him to cope with that loss yeah. and yeah. so you know it, it's a it's a good eight years since she's died now and he's getting on fine he still loves her and he still misses her but he's coped with it better than he thought he would have yeah yeah and and, and i imagine that's true for you too uh have you lost anyone since you've been doing this research and felt like you were yeah. better equipped Oh yes, definitely. I've um, since doing the research. Is two members of my family who I've lost: my grandfather, first of all, and then my other grandmother. And without a doubt, if I hadn't done this research, I think I that the grieving process would have been a lot more prolonged, and it would have been harder to deal with. But an interesting case that I came across as well. In fact, last week, a a lovely lady emailed me and she had written to me back in 2002 after she'd read about some of my work in a a magazine. And at the time, she'd had a near-death experience and didn't really understand it. And um, she had been sent back to life. And during the experience, she'd been told by these beings of light that she had work to do concerning her husband. And when she got back, she didn't remember what it was. She didn't remember a thing. But she'd had this experience and couldn't understand it. And then last week, she wrote to me again, and uh, her email said, and she said she understood her experience now, because uh, in about 2008, her husband had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And uh, in the weeks and the days leading up to his death, she was able to share about her near-death experience with her husband and she knew that it gave him great comfort and that it helped him to have a a very peaceful transition into death. And she said afterwards now on reflecting back, she totally understands why she came back, although she can't exactly remember the the words of the people in the experience, she now understood that what her purpose for coming back to life. And uh, afterwards, um, it was interesting, after her husband had died, he then there was a series of little messages really from him that were very, very symbolic, which is as if he was giving her some after death communications as well. Wow. So, um, yeah, it gave her a different perspective on everything. And it then fully integrated the experience into her life. And she feels she can now talk about it as well. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, in many ways, uh, many levels to that. Uh, you as a nurse... Um, do you ever feel you have the opportunity when working as a nurse with someone uh, who is in the dying process to share your experiences with them? Uh, and if so, what kind of response do you get? Yes, in fact, I found my research to be really beneficial in caring for dying patients. And um, it's usually over a period of days when you've built up a bit of a relationship with the patient, I don't want to just kind of come out with it and say, I've done this research. Yeah. You know, it, it's important that you build up the trust and you know that they're going to be receptive and it's appropriate for me to mention it. Right. And right. so I usually kind of start with, you know, sometimes people express fear of death. That's very, very common. And so I say, I often say to them, well, I've done some research and I've spoken to people 
who have clinically died and they've said it was a lovely experience. If you want, I can explain more about it. And very often they ask me to tell them more about my research. And so I've shared about what people have told me and the kinds of things that they are likely to encounter. And uh, it's given them a great deal of peace. They look more peaceful and they seem a lot happier about it as well. And it gives them a lot to think of. So I found it to be really beneficial. And I think it's given me the confidence to talk about death with patients as they're dying as well. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people who have had near-death experiences, I think, end up working in hospice, uh, probably because they don't really know how else to utilize that experience. Uh, how, and from your experience, how open are uh, is hospice, the hospice community, to, mm -hmm. to this sort of thing? I think the hospice community is great because it does really embrace the importance of these experiences because it's not just about the physical aspects of patient care, it is about the whole being of a patient, the spiritual aspects as well and they are so crucial at the end of life and they're so poorly understood as well in general really. So I think the, the hospice movement is very much geared up and um, I can remember in 2006 um, I spoke at a conference, an IANS conference in Texas, in uh, Houston in Texas and it was at the AMD Anderson Cancer Centre and it was really great to see that actual people in the audience were the physicians from the hospice there and they were really interested in this and they wanted to embrace it and to you know Im implement aspects of this in patient care as well so they really are recognizing the importance of this which is so great it's such a breakthrough that is, that is nice um and, and i i hope that uh, this information is integrated more and more not only in hospice but also in uh all of healthcare, which we'll talk about more in a moment um you know, uh, you talk a lot about how NDEs teach us a lot about life, not, not yeah. you know, and uh, what are some of the key components that, that we learn about life by studying NDEs? Um, I think a lot of people, especially during the life review, they realize the interconnectivity of everything, that everything is one, that we're all part of a great whole. And, um, and I think... The, the basic message of the near-death experience is to treat others as you would wish to be treated yourself. And if you think of that message, that is at the heart of all the great wisdom traditions. Every single tradition has said that. And I think if everyone did live like that, can you think how different the world would be? It would just be amazing. It would be, And I think when people have that direct experience of that consciousness, I think that's what really does make them realize that, you know, that is the way life is. You know, treat others as you'd like to be treated yourself. And I think these experiences as well, they they make people more altruistic. And if you look at the work of, of Darwin, um, we've always, a lot of his work has been kind of, um, not misinterpreted, but we only get to hear about the aspect where he says about survival of the fittest. Mm. But a really big aspect of Darwin's work, he was to find out that we've survived as a species because we have this great ability to, to love and empathise. Mm. And, you know, when people are more altruistic, that's what they do. They empathise more and they love more people more. And I think that that's really important for our evolution as well. So I think these are really evolutionary experiences as well. 
So, um, and I think we, we all can learn so much. And, you know, these people have got a great message and all we have to do is listen to them and hear what they're saying. And we can all benefit without having to nearly die. Yeah. Wow. Very powerful. Very powerful. Uh, I have uh, three questions. Hopefully we'll get through it. Skype will let us get through it. Um, <laughs> if not, we'll do one more segment uh, where, where we can get through it. Because uh, my first question is, after all that you've learned, we have a lot of people. Uh, who watch Afterlife TV, who are grieving the loss of a loved one. And I wondered, you know, what kind of message would you have for somebody who's going through that experience based on everything that you've done and learned? Mm -hmm. Well, I would encourage them to read as many accounts of near-death experiences as they can. And if they know of anyone who's had an experience, go and spend time with them and talk to them, because that can also be a great source of, of comfort but also perhaps it would give them a different perspective on things as well and I know that there are a lot of people now therapists who use accounts of near-death experiences to help people through the grieving process and it's proven to be very successful so I, I would suggest reading lots of accounts of, of these experiences yeah and, and um the INs, I mean, people could go to the IN. Anybody can go to those INDS. Uh, they can look it up online um, yeah. to find a local chapter uh, near them where they can go to some of these meetings or conventions that they offer and listen to these people tell their stories, right? Yes, that's right. And it's they're a big supportive community there, so they're, they're very beneficial, yes. Yeah, I don't know that too many people think of it in terms of grief support, but it certainly is an option, and I think it would be a great one for a lot of people. Um, so my second question then in, in this line of thinking is what message would you have for people there's a lot of them, and I know there's a lot of Afterlife TV viewers, they've had a near-death experience, or they think they have. Um, <laughs> it has never been acknowledged for them, uh, <laughs> and maybe partly because they're afraid to share it with anyone, so they never have. What, what, what do you usually tell people the first time you, you run into someone like this who hasn't shared this experience with, them, with anyone, and uh, they're not even really sure if what they had is real or not? Well, first of all, I... I you know, to say to them that they're not alone. They're not the only one to have this experience because it can be very isolating. You know, they've had this wonderful experience. They don't know quite how to express it, don't fully understand it. And yet they know that there's something there that they want to talk about maybe and maybe not talk about it. But um, I would encourage them to find someone who is em empathetic and who someone who they trust and, and share the experience with them. Now, very often, I think a, a lot of attitudes are, are now changing and people are recognizing that the near-death experience is a highly valid phenomenon. So I think, you know, that they'd be surprised that a lot of people would be really uh, interest in, interested in what they have to say. So I would seek someone out. Now, if someone does get a bad reaction or not the reaction that they were expected, don't be disappointed by that. Just try and find someone else. Not everyone understands the experiences, but there are people out there who do understand and they'd be only too too happy to listen to them as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly my experience as well. A lot of people fascinated by this subject matter can't really get enough of hearing about different people's near-death experiences uh, and 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 yet we have all these people who are afraid to share them because of you know certainly the ones that don't exist out there and uh, and they can shut people down 
all yeah. too quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I can remember I worked with doctors, and you know, it was ten years later that a doctor came up to me, and I'd known him all that time, and he said, "You know, I'm going to tell you something now, but I've had a near-death experience as well, but I didn't want to tell you about it until now." Wow, wow. There's a there's a passage. I actually think it's. I remember <laughs> the page. Believe it or not, uh, page one fifty one. If I can get through it, I'll just say, you know, uh, you talk about someone, one particular person. uh, She found she was unable to discuss her experience with anyone as no one understood what she was trying to tell them. First, she tried to talk with her husband who didn't understand it, and they ended up divorcing. Then the pastor of her local church told her it was the work of the devil. She then went to her doctor who never heard of NDEs and referred her to a psychiatrist who'd also never heard of NDEs. It was suggested that she had unresolved emotional conflict that had caused delusions and that she should try long-term psychotherapy for the delusions and tranquilizers for her anxiety. She was increasingly confused, but she felt such positive changes in her life, and it was many years later when she came across a book on NDEs that she was finally able to understand her near-death experience. Yeah. That's that's it. It just says it all right there, doesn't it? It does, yes. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Brilliant writing. Um, so the last question that I wanted to ask you in, in this line of thinking was, what message do you have for hospital administrators or doctors or nurses in reference to, uh, and because you say this so well in your book, uh, the need to integrate spirituality into healthcare? Yeah, I think there is so much emphasis on the physical that we totally neglect the spiritual aspect of patient care. And I think that is really something that is crucial to uh, understanding patients and to improve the patient experience as well and so I think it's really crucial that these experiences and all kinds of spiritual aspects are introduced into the education of all healthcare workers I think this is like paramount you know because you read out the example of that lady now who went to sort out people for help you know People understood near-death experiences. How many people out there have been given tranquilizers and pills because they've been misunderstood about their experience? Mm. You know, if, if we understood these better, we could save the health service millions and millions uh, of dollars over the years. So I think we it, it's crucial that we, we take note of these experiences now and that we put them into the education of all healthcare workers. It's, it's essential. And you draw a distinction between religion and spirituality. How is it that you say that? Well, religion tends to follow um, set uh, practices and rituals, whereas spirituality, maybe people feel very spiritual, but they don't necessarily feel like they have to go to a church or they don't particularly worship a particular deity, but they have a sense of faith in different ways. And spiritual aspects of patient care are about looking at their um the the whole thing of their person everything that gives meaning to their life really yeah yeah right um I'm, uh your website is dr penny sartori doctor with the dr penny yes. sartori.com uh mm-hmm. links will be in the show notes below this video uh once again your book the wisdom of near-death experiences how understanding nds can help us live more fully you got another book uh you're thinking about 
Yes, I am. I'm planning uh, another book at the moment, and uh, that should be out in a couple of years by the time the publishing process takes. Yeah, that's right. It's a slow <laughs> process. It's a slow process. Thank yeah. you so much. Do you have any final words, anything, any kind of message, anything that you wanted to say or promote, whatever it may be, um, that we missed out on today? I, there's so much we could have talked about. Uh, there is. I, I, I just think, you know, people don't don't be afraid to share your experiences. And I think it's really important if someone does share their experience with you, that you validate it for them. That's really crucial. Uh, and listen to what they have to say, even if you don't particularly understand it or you don't really think that there's anything other than hallucinations. Maybe, you know, it, it's important that you validate it and say, well, other people have had this experience. Maybe you should seek people to talk to about it. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way to end it. Um, thank you for your tolerance with our Skype issues. <laughs> See, you're, you're even more tolerant uh, after doing all this work, <laughs> me included. Um, and uh, thanks. Keep us updated on your new book when it comes out. We'd love to have you back. And Great. it was really enjoyable talking here from Maine, southern Maine, to where are you in England? In Swansea. Swansea, beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Okay, thank you, Bob. Bye, everybody. Bye.